You may remember uh, last Sunday we had a discussion how important it is in the next rebirth not to lose contact with the Dhamma. Because the reality is that there's not that many people who can completely finish in this one lifetime now. Uh, ideally, this is what we are aiming for, what we are aspiring to. But to be a little bit more realistic, it doesn't seem to be that common that people can crack it and attain full Nibbana, total release, Avahanship, the end of all defilements, the end of suffering, the right here in this life. It's possible, but requires such high commitment and diligent practice that for most it goes over lifetimes. And of course, if a person attains the first stage of enlightenment, stream entry, sotapati, then there is a cure. As the Buddha stated, even for a stream enter, it can take up to a maximum of seven more lifetimes. I mean, that is the absolute maximum. Usually they be quicker. But even the, the slowest stream enter, stream enter, so to speak, will not have more than seven lifetimes, seven rebirths. But the most important thing is that they can't fall away anymore. They will never be reborn in the, um, the subhuman rebirth, in the hell, animals and ghosts. And even when they're born as a human, it will be in very good circumstance. And they can't lose a connection, it's impossible. Below that level, if one is not yet esteemed and by if one hasn't realized the Four Noble Truth on an experiential level, there's always that danger. And we have to deliberately make resolutions and we have to deepen our practice that it goes into the subconscious mind so that next time around we are not losing the contact. The one thing I was sharing, uh, I ended up uh, being in the German Armed Forces in 1985, just as a conscript. And very luckily in those days there, there was no war. So I didn't have to fight in any war or anything. But I had even uh, volunteered for uh, two years, and then you could be an officer of the reserve, but they, they didn't want me. It's the best thing I can say about the German armed forces, that they recognized my unsuitability, which is pretty obvious. And I was a Buddhist monk telling everyone not to harm even an ant, much less killing a human being. It's not exactly what you would want as an officer in your armed forces. No, but it could have, could have been different, and not so much later. No, I mean, two decades later or something, the uh, German troops were actually stationed in Afghanistan. It was possible no, to make very heavy bad karma. And then Ben was sharing this interesting story, which I want to give an update on because he had listened to a Dhamma talk by Ajahn Amaro and he couldn't remember the details, so I thought I'd give you an update on that. And uh, as a young monk, <coughs> Ajahn Amaro had some unusual problem with a lymph node. Some lymph node died and then was just creating problems and it was a fairly uh, unusual sickness. So he was sent to this uh, RAF hospital 
in the British Royal Air Force Hospital. And they treated him, it was all good. And now he was leaving and he was waiting for the van from Amaravati to pick him up and get him back to the monastery. And while he was sitting, this uh, very old gentleman approached him and started chatting and asked him, now, do you mind if I talk to you? He said, no, no, not at all, please sit down. And then he told him his whole life story. It's quite fascinating. I have experienced that as well as a monk, that sometimes people you know, really open up to you on flights. So you're sitting next to someone and then you get over five hours and you get their whole life story. And he wasn't even a Buddhist. He didn't even fully know what kind of tradition and so on Ajahn Amaro is. And he told him that as a young man in the 1920s in Britain, coming from a simple background, and he still had that aspiration to travel, to see the world, and to become a pilot, which is also an easy way of seeing the world. But in the 1920s or 30s, it would be very difficult unless you're from a rich background, unless you go to the armed forces, into the Air Force. And this is how he went into the Air Force. And at that time, he was quite naive, although 1930s, in hindsight, you would think the very obvious that the war is coming, but it wasn't for them at all. And he ended up in this fighter squadron, and he asked his commander, we are fighter squadron, but who are we supposed to be fighting? Mid-1930s, he said, no, there's no war, who are we supposed to be fighting? And his commander said, no, not most likely the French, we didn't have a war with the French for a long time. So it came obviously quite different. And so even once he was in there, it wasn't anything unwholesome. It didn't look like any big danger. But then actually the Second World War did come, and they were fighting, and uh, he proved to be very uh, capable and having strong leadership abilities, and then he was promoted rapidly. And he became the youngest air chief marshal at that time. I think that is a three- or four-star general in the Air Force, so really high rank. Uh, the guy is even in the Wikipedia. He died in the 1990s. Um, Hugh Constantine. Hugh Constantine. Still has a Wikipedia entry. Uh, later, I think he became the chief of the Royal Air Force after the war. So, and as you're moving up, he became responsible for planning a lot of the uh, bombing campaigns, what they called strategic bombing campaign, which was deliberately meant to kind of terrorize the um, civilian population because they were investigating and trying to figure out you know, what is the most effective way of you know, undermining the morale of Germany. They did studies because they also had attacks in Britain and then they used their experience from there and they found, for example, that people losing their home tends to have a more demoralizing effect than even losing uh, relatives. 
So they had a deliberate program of what they called uh, de-housing. That's deliberately in the design that a maximum of people either get killed, injured, or at least they lose their homes. And he was responsible for doing the very first thousand bomber raid, I think it was on Cologne. And he was also the one responsible for the bombing raid on Dresden, which became quite uh, controversial later, because you know, the uh, numbers were quite horrendous, and no one knows how many died. I think it was the lowest estimates are maybe 25,000. The highest are a quarter million in that one raid over three days. And the whole city was just crammed with uh, refugees and had very little military value. And in February 1945, you know, the war was completely lost anyhow for Germany. So it was very controversial afterwards. And he said, no, all they got you know, is an encrypted uh, telegram from 10 Downing Street, which said, Dresden, maximum impact. And then he started planning. And then he had also on, uh, many other big bombing campaigns. And interestingly, after the war, he, he felt really bad about it. And he made it a point of uh, visiting every single place and city in Germany where he had been involved with the bombing. It took him two years. And obviously, he could go only on holidays or maybe sometimes a weekend. So it took him two years. And I imagine must be psychologically have been very difficult not to go and to see all these places. And after that, he made a vow, at least he told Ajahn Amor that he made a vow to himself that he wanted to dedicate the rest of his life to um, making sure that something like this war never, never happens again. And I was quite uh, intrigued by that story. Now, the first thing which it shows is now how easy it is once you go to the next life. Now, he was interested in flying and seeing the world. He had never had any interest in organizing the gigantic bombing campaigns which take out whole cities. The flying and seeing the world is all quite okay. There's nothing unwholesome. And then the Air Force being the only way for a person from simple background to get into flying or the easiest. And then he joined during peacetime, not expecting even any war really to happen. And then the war coming and then getting promoted and then ending up with that kind of job. So that shows how important it is that we internalize in the subconscious mind our connection with the Dharma, our commitment to the precepts. So that next lifetime we are not getting sidetracked. It can happen so easily. The other thing which really intrigued me is the, the integrity of that person, the um, Air Marshal, uh, Constantine, that he uh, would even go to all these places and confront that and then uh, make a resolution for the future and I now want to prevent that from happening ever again.
That's really beautiful. And also that he just approaches a Buddhist monk and kind of, it's almost like a confession, telling him all of that. When I visited uh, Hanem Monastery, Aruna Ratanagiri, in the north of England, not so far from Newcastle, um, the second monk was Ajahn Abinando, who is also German. He's now the abbot in Switzerland. But those days he was the second monk in Aruna Ratanagiri. And he took me on a walk to a little country church, it's just a very tiny town. Or big village and they have this old church and they had a memorial inside, memorial plaque because during the war one of the German bombers bombed that church but they were very lucky because the bomb hit the wall of the church, this thick stone wall and just smashed through but didn't explode <laughs> so that church wasn't really damaged except for this hole in the wall. And then the, the later they, they kind of kept that, they repaired it, but you could see what happened. They put a plaque. And then the uh, German bomber pilot also after the war felt bad, bad conscience, and he actually visited that tiny British town and introduced himself to the mayor and to the people. And he explained that he didn't really intend to bomb their church but uh, he, he was under attack himself by a fighter and then he had to just drop his bombs immediately that he can get away. And this is how he ended up in a, um, unluckily in a, not really intended not bombing exactly the church. And also he threw bombs, I think, on that little town as well. But again, they're quite beautiful that someone has this strong conscience and makes the effort now visiting that town. It must be quite an uh, embarrassing kind of thing that when you approach people and say, I'm the guy who was bombing your church. And they became quite good friends, the people in the town and that bomber pilot, the German bomber pilot. Investigating that, I also noticed there's quite a few examples in Second World War where churches were hit and ended up uh, not with the bombs not exploding. You think that sometimes maybe good karma, sometimes maybe even the devas, angels, protecting that. So um, we have to get that really deep in our subconscious mind, the abstaining from killing living beings because we never know in what kind of environment we grow up. You may start in a very supportive Dhamma environment but then changes may occur. I also mentioned that because right now we have a lot of war propaganda. The first in the Ukraine started in February and then they usually in a crank up the propaganda where they try to convince people that this is a just war and they try to convince people to support war. 
And more recently, we had it with China now. Not so bad yet. But I can notice now that this is also gearing up, to gear up the enmity and, and hatred. It's usually required to get people going to war. It's actually not so easy to get people killing other people. There seems to be, in, in most, not everyone, a psychopath is different, but in most people there's a strong inhibition in uh, killing other humans. And usually you have to do special training and sometimes these uh, dehumanizing kind of training that you get people being willing that become just like uh, killers. It's quite fascinating if you look at now how they are training in the military. There's a famous movie from Stanley Kubrick. I think it's Full Metal Jacket. Ne? That was that the Kubrick one. Ne? It's quite famous the scenes where the uh, Marines, American Marines, are trained for Vietnam War. And the guy who is playing the um, gunnery sergeant is actually a person who, who was in that position. He wasn't an actor, he had a very late change in career, and he hadn't any acting experience, I think, when he auditioned, and Kubrick liked him so much that he hired him, although he had no experience, but he had only to play what he was doing anyhow. If you want to see what is the dehumanizing training so that you kind of destroy people and then rebuild them, according to your mode, you know, that they're willing to kill. Quite fascinating to watch that. When I served in the German army, it was nothing like that, and what you could notice, and also it's a special kind of environment that would try to induce you know, to break the first precept. I also noticed a movie has got a sequel, I think, after getting close to 40 years, because Top Gun was when I was young in the 1985 or something. It's Tom Cruise when he's in the Air Force. Oh, no, no, he's probably a Navy pilot because he's flying from, a, from an uh, aircraft carrier. And I noticed that there's a sequel coming just for the right time when the propaganda machine for war against Russia and looks like no, enmity to China is now being pushed up. And again, uh, if you watch that, it looks like being real fun, being a fighter pilot, and it really appeals you know, to young men. Flying you know, the fastest thing other than spacecraft, you know, the most powerful thing you, know, you can possibly operate. Very you know, attractive for male teenagers, usually. And the way that is you know, presented, you know, like being fun and excitement and uh, adventure and comradeship, but you don't see in the pictures no, from the children uh, starving to death in Yemen from the bombing campaigns or no, the uh, disabled people from the weddings they have bombed in Afghanistan and all these kind of things and in Syria. It's nothing like that in Top Gun. It's a pure propaganda movie to induce you no, to join the armed forces and become a fighter. 
I notice not even many of these so-called anti-war movies where they're presenting war in a really little bit, not a little bit, where they're realistically presenting the horror and the um, atrocities of war. But even in those movies, usually all the soldiers are still following the orders. I'm still waiting for a movie where the hero is a deserter. Either a deserter or someone who quickly surrenders his whole unit or someone who just is willing to, to be shot in a court-martial rather than fighting themselves. And there have always been people like that. Even in Germany's Second World War, there were thousands of people who were shot for refusing to fight and as deserters. But you never see them as a hero in these movies. You only see, even when they show the atrocities, you only see people still following orders. And it's uh, amazing, how can you get people in the First World War, and what they call to go over the top, go over the top and they had to come out of the trench and run for a couple of hundred meters into the machine gun fire and then to attack the other guys and kill them. So you're risking your life, not even for achieving anything. And the best you achieve is super bad karma and you come out on top and kill the others. But they all do that. And I'm waiting for the movie in the way you have actually the ones being the heroes and not doing it. But even the anti-war movies don't usually bring that. There were amazing things in the First World War. There were whole divisions, several divisions, whole section in the whole front in France where the soldiers refused to attack. They would still be willing to defend if the Germans attack. But they told the officers and the higher ranks that they're basically kind of on strike. And if any attack is being ordered, they wouldn't follow orders. Have you ever heard of that? No, because these, none of these guys got uh, the high medals. I'm not sure what it is in France, but in uh, Britain, Australia would be the Victoria Cross. It's not given to these kind of guys. No one writes the novels about them, no one does the movies about them. And these were maybe some 100,000 soldiers, and they had an agreement. They said, no, no, we wouldn't attack anymore because that is the only way how you can really stop war by just refusing to kill and making war this is why it's so helpful it, to have these little rules about not killing small creatures and I have found that has a profound training effect on the mind because you know, even these tiny midges and mosquitoes and they bite you and you restrain yourself. And sometimes it's almost like a reflex. You're distracted, you do something else and then something starts biting you and then you have to have quite good mindfulness and not to almost automatically quickly squash them or kill them. But if one makes that effort over years, 
making a special effort and not even kill these tiny creatures intentionally, that it has a very um, powerful training effect and then say killing a, a pig or a cow and it appears quite impossible. Not talking about killing a human, that becomes really um, difficult to imagine. Of course one never knows in how one would react if one is in an in a extreme situation if one, where one's own life is in danger and so on. That, that is difficult to predict. But at least as long as one is not directly challenged and just imagining that now after years of trying not to harm the even tiny insects, it goes quite deep. And we can remember after becoming a monk, once it occurred to me that we had this dog, Cocker Spaniel, in our family back home when I was a teenager. And when we were once on holiday in Austria on a, uh, on a farm, they had this kind of a holiday on a farm, which was actually really nice for the kids. First time I actually saw that all, and how the farmers are actually doing it, and with the pigs and uh, the cows and the stable and looking after them was quite fascinating. Felt very educational for a city kid. But I remember that uh, there were some mice and there were some mice climbing into an empty esky and then they couldn't get out anymore. They tried to jump out and they couldn't get out. And being a young teenager, early teens or something, and our dog not normally much involved with hunting, so I wanted to get him now a little bit hunting these mice and I set him up to the mice which is obviously not a nice thing to do, and if he would catch them, he would obviously kill them. And I felt bad about it. But when I later talked to my mother, she could also remember that, and our dog being a city dog, he actually didn't manage to catch them. <laughs> so I was lucky the mice all survived, and our dog didn't have enough skills to get them, and not enough killer instinct, maybe. So it's really important uh, to resist this propaganda. And we will always see in, uh, in uh, modern wars uh, for the last hundred years or more, there's always, usually first, uh, a strong propaganda war, because you have to get the population uh, to bring up enough uh, hostility, enough enmity, enough anger, much, enough uh, aggression. And you have to get you know, the soldiers wired up, you have to get people you know, willing to fight and to kill. Someone has to be aware of that you know, and not allow that to infiltrate the mind. I was quite disappointed to see you know, that Top Gun was, I think, the uh, highest grossing movie this year and the highest grossing of Tom Cruise he has ever done, although he's a superstar anyhow. I'm sure some people like it.
And when I look back, once you're reborn in a non-Buddhist environment, there's actually not a single Buddhist among my family or friends. I mean, that is back back home. Not, not friends nowadays, no, but uh, before I became a monk among family and friends. And then even if you have some wholesome tendency already built up, it's quite easy that it changes. I also was very strongly against drinking. And I remember in grade 10, when we had a uh, holiday, these school holidays with, I mean, going class excursion or whatever you call that, for a week. And uh, the teacher, actually, I think it was actually a rather good thing, because those days, and I think we were about 16, and usually you can't stop them from drinking anyhow. So he allowed us, I think, one, one evening he allowed one bottle of beer to rather have it in a controlled environment than having them going on their own, and you can't stop them. And myself and one other in a class out of almost 30 were the only ones not taking it because I was against it. But then later, I think in grade 12, I got into taking alcohol. And I think that the reason that I was originally against it, you know, because in my family, you know, they, there's no one is a kind of heavy drinker, but they're also not uh, in the sense that they're keeping the fifth precept very strongly, because they're not Buddhist, and in Christian religion, you know, there's no precepts against uh, drinking. So I don't think it came from my parents that I had this very strong attitude and wouldn't even drink a single beer, even if the teacher allows it. But then hanging out and being at parties and having other friends and someone had just getting sloshed for the first time and then talking about it and recommending that we buy some nice alcohol and so on, and then I got into it. It's just so easy. So we have to make the commitment uh, as deep as possible so that even in your dreams you're not killing or drinking. Has it ever happened that you are in a dream and suddenly you break a precept and then you realize, oh, I shouldn't do that, and then you wake up? That's a very good sign if that happens. If one has you know, that awareness and if one is acting within the precepts, even in one's dreams, that indicates an advent into the subconscious mind. Okay, so let us all fully commit to the five precepts, the first one, not okay, and all the other four and practicing that now over years and decades and then making firm resolutions, uh, repeating our chanting and uh, carrying our practice deep enough that it goes into the subconscious mind and that we can uh, reconnect with the Dhamma in the next life. And even if there are temptations or for some period we may be in a non-Buddhist environment or whatever may happen, that we can 
always come back if you don't get lost.